0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Katie Stallard, who's a senior editor at the New Statesman and previously a correspondent for Sky News in China and Russia, as well as being a non-resident fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., among many other things. And she'll be talking about her new book, Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia, and North Korea, which was published in 2022, just a few weeks ago, in fact, uh, by Oxford University Press. Few states consistently occupy more column inches in Western media today than China, Russia, and North Korea, with each seeming in their own way to present a challenge to the US-led global order, if indeed you can still call it an order at this stage. Of course, no shortage of attention has been paid in recent weeks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but coverage of this catastrophe still competes with reporting on Beijing's shifting policies in Hong Kong and Pyongyang's latest missile launches, to name just a couple of examples. But if an atmosphere of menace or crisis seems to surround these states' relations with the West in the present day, then it's just as important that the challenge they pose is a historical as well as a contemporary one. History, of course, matters to any state, but as Katie Stellard shows in Dancing on Bones, today's Chinese, Russian, and North Korean leaderships have gone to specific lengths to shape historical narratives in order to secure their grip on power. Based on years of reporting and research from all of these places, Stallard mixes analysis of political events in each country over the past 70 years or so with first hand accounts of her own interviews and reportage, painting a vivid picture of how, in each place, the past is made to serve the present, as Mao Zedong put it. Juggling multiple time frames in three different locations is no easy task. But this accessibly written book manages this with aplomb, and in doing so, sheds light on connections between these important countries, which go well beyond generalised perceptions of them as provisionist powers. Uh, but the author's here to say more about all of these crucial topics, so I'll say Katie Stellard, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to speak to you.
1: Well, great to read a book uh, on uh, probably the three countries that I'm most interested in myself too. So uh, as a self-indulgence exercise, also very gratifying. Um, But this obviously has nothing to do with me. So I'll start by asking you about your background, how you became interested in these places in general, and then more specifically uh, in the relationship uh, in each of them between history and power.
0: Well, so I'm originally from the, the far northeast of, of Scotland, and it probably wasn't a natural path from there to, to Russia and China. But my, my mother had studied Russian at university and I grew up hearing stories about her own travels there back in the days of the Soviet Union, traveling through Checkpoint Charlie in, in a minibus and and. Uh, being rushed to the front of the line to to see Lenin in Red Square, so I, I had a kind of a, a, a long running interest um, in Russia, and I was very fortunate to join uh, Sky News um, in London as a reporter, and really set about um, trying to trying to chart a path from from there to to Russia. I was very keen um, to to get the chance to to live and 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 report from from Moscow, um, which were, which I was very uh, fortunate to to get the role there in in 2012. I spent around three years um, reporting in Russia for Sky News. I, I was based in Moscow, but covering the wider region. Um, and significantly for our purposes, that, that included the, the period of, of the, I guess what we are now would call the first war in Ukraine, um, beginning in, in 2014. So so spent a lot of time traveling backwards and forwards between Russia and Ukraine. And then from there, moved to to China in the uh, mid 2015, um, and spent another um, three years re- reporting from from Beijing, where I also um, picked up um, the 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 beat covering covering North Korea. So I, I reported pretty extensively from, from on North Korea over the next three three years, and then ultimately got the chance to, to travel there and report um, on the on the ground too. So a sort of a combination of um, personal interest, uh, luck, opportunity um, has has given me the chance to to. Live and work and, and report from from these three, um, as, as you say, very very consequential um, uh, and, and countries that are they're always always in our headlines for for one reason or another. Right, and j- I
1: mean just on that, I mean given that they're places that are so often connected, uh, often you know in a way that maybe doesn't reflect as deeply as as you have on the sort of profound links between them. Um, I just wonder in a in a large media organisation like Sky or any other is there a sense that someone who's reported from Russia will be well suited to going to China as well? Is there is, does that connection exist institutionally? Or was this something that was more just your own sort of preference and chance kind of thing?
0: I think there's certainly a, a sense that if you can operate in one, you can probably operate in, in another. Um, so I think I think there's both, you know, there's the there's the sort of nuts and bolts of, of reporting and, and journalism and, and some of the some of the factors you're dealing with in, in Russia are similar for China. So in terms of, you know, surveillance, security concerns, um, it being very difficult to, to conduct interviews um, and, and, you know, working within a a repressive regime is, is, you know, is something that I had experience in, in Russia. And and so I guess made them think I could, I could cope with it in in China. But then I think also there were, you know, as you know looking at these countries i think once you start to look at the at the history and understand the importance of you know leninist political systems for instance um there are links between these countries um and and their and their past that are that are beyond the sort of grouping that we tend to see now in terms of being at the top of of threats to to western and, and united states um, security the, the, those links existed long before we started um Grouping them together as as this sort of modern day axis.
1: Sure, yeah, no, there's an awful lot to plumb into. Going back, uh, well, even even beyond the the already impressive scope of time that you bring into to this book. Um, but on the book, then, um, how did the idea of, of writing this book kind of come out of your experiences in these places?
0: I mean, it was a gradual process, but I think looking back now, there are there are a few key moments um, that really led to this. So the first was right back in 2014. And it's actually what I what I start the book with this in, in the introduction, is the experience of being on the ground in, in Ukraine after the Maidan revolution, and traveling through southern Ukraine towards Crimea, where at the time, all we knew was that these um, little green men is what people were calling them. They were Russian forces, but they'd taken off their insignia, had taken control of airports and key infrastructure. And so driving was the only way to get there and when we came close to to Crimea um very late at night we were stopped at this um checkpoint which had just gone up by by you know local guys in camouflage gear and masks with with guns who were stopping all the cars and, and checking them and the reason that they gave for what what was happening was was grounded in the, the history of the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War, as it's called in Russia. So the first thing that these guys were were, were telling me was, you know, this is the land of our, our ancestors fought during the Great Patriotic War. Now fascists and Nazis are on the rise again, and, and we're here to show that that's not going to work and to stand against them. So right from the early days of that conflict, the war just felt like it was very present. People wore the orange and black ribbon of St. George um, to identify themselves on, on the on the separatist side and it it was fascinating to me to see just how consequential those historical narratives were and how they seem to be driving you know you'd come to checkpoints in in a rural part of, of eastern Ukraine and there'd be a picture a poster of Stalin there like the, the the symbols from that from that past war and from the Soviet past were really present in that in that current conflict and then moving to, to China, one of the first major assignments I did there was this um Victory Day parade in September 2015 to mark the anniversary of the end of the war, which is something that happens um in Russia and which looked like it was, you know, a long held tradition in China too, but but wasn't. It was the first time it had ever been held. So looking at those two those two incidents together, I felt like there were echoes of of the same story in in both countries and i just became really fascinated in well, how does the history of these past wars play into current day politics here how are those in power manipulating harnessing the story of, of these wars and and what is the version of history that you would learn if you grew up in in these countries and how how would that make you you see the world so i think those were the two sort of key points that got me really hooked um, on this idea, and then once I started to also cover North Korea, and I saw how history was being used there, I thought, well, if I, you know, if I am serious at looking at how autocrats use history and manipulate history, North Korea is just you know the nth degree example of this. So, I, so I should, so I should try and look at, at North Korea too. So it was um, logistically a, a vast and probably. Totally unadvisable um, undertaking to try and to try and look at, at all three countries, but I really felt there are gradations of the same story here. And there are we can learn from, from looking at all three rather than looking at at, at any one on its own as a sort of exceptional example that, that has no compatriots.
1: Mm. Well, that leads very naturally on to the kind of next question, I guess, which draws us back to this comparison, this grouping of these, these places together often. Uh, as we've already said, in a sort of non-analytical way, perhaps. Um, so, what is it about the continuities or similarities that makes you sort of see those as being uh, worthy of uh, a comparison between them, and then b highlighting as something specific that is different to how any state, any political community or body might, you know, use history or draw on what you know we might think of as a a usable past, right? To use that term. Um, how is how are how are these places different, or at least uh, specific and similar enough to merit study together?
0: Yes, I think it's important to be to be clear right at the outset that the you know, the impulse to do this and to manipulate history in this way is by no means limited to autocrats. I think we can all think of plenty of democratically elected leaders who um, draw on the past in a in a very selective manner to to serve their own political purposes. And that's because it it, it works. I mean, these these stories resonate, they rally popular support. So if you are somebody who is interested in getting or keeping power then of course you would try to harness the power of the past. But the the point I come out to in the book is that we as citizens should be very wary of that and of how these narratives are are being mobilized because first and foremost, they're being used to serve those in power and entrench existing political systems rather than to to actually address the the issues of of the country and to serve us individually um, as citizens. With With these three countries, what really struck me studying them in depth was the degree to which that sort of official version of history was really becoming the only, certainly the only version of history you could voice publicly. I think, you know, when I first started the book, there was a a greater degree of separation between the three in terms of the information environment. So in, in Russia, for instance, you know, 2015, 2016, there were still... Independent media outlets, um, albeit under under growing pressure in, in recent years, internet access was was relatively free. Um, you know, you could, if you were interested, find information that that contradicted what you were seeing on on Russian state television news. So there there were differences in the degree of control that that, they, that the respective regimes had, but but those have become. More similar over time, so the you know access to to the to alternative sources of news, alternative information in Russia has has really been dramatically shut down um, over the over the course of the, the last twelve months, um, in particular. But I think it was really wanting to understand. So these are you know there are three countries that I was personally reporting about, um, but that were were constantly in our headlines um, and seem to be. We talk a lot about these countries, but I felt we weren't always doing a great job of understanding um, what was actually happening in these countries with any degree of, of nuance um, or detail. So I wanted to sort of take these sort of almost caricatures um, of strongman leaders that, that we see on the news and try to understand how does this work in, in practice? Like, how are they using how do they use the past? What are the stories that they tell? What is the case they make for why they should be in power and why they should build up these weapons programs? Why their why their actions are acceptable? So I wanted to sort of, I guess, with with my sort of reporting hat on, you know, I, I felt like we were we were missing a, a really an important story of what is actually happening inside these countries and what role is history and specifically the role of of the, the history of past wars playing in their contemporary politics.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, we'll jump into the specificities of you know some of those developments uh, in a second. I guess one final question though that just you know slightly uh, relates to that uh, to that question about comparisons outside uh, just these three. But um, I, I guess I'd be curious as well, uh, while we're still in the framing stage of thinking about this, whether you came to think any differently about uh history as as you had learned or i mean i guess uh, you know not to over personalize it we grew up on the same island but in parts of of it which maybe have their own respective different as- uh, uh, approaches to history and indeed uh also lots of bits of history that don't get talked about in either <laughs> place so did you come to see uh scottish or british or i guess broadly maybe even uh, you know, post-war Western history in any different in any different way as a result of studying these these things.
0: Yeah, I remember going around a, a museum in in Glasgow um, during a visit back from China. So this was probably I know 20, 2017 or twenty eighteen, and being really struck by how much um, it was a how much the, the history of British colonialism just wasn't there. How much it just seemed to be to be skipped over. I think I've become. Really sensitive, working on the book to how all how all of us are are looking in it in a very very selective way um, at the past, and to particularly so. I'm, I'm now based um, in the United States, seeing the arguments here over you know which parts of the past should we remember and should we or shouldn't we um, look at and center the darker aspects of the past, having. Spent so many years focusing on on how autocrats use history. I just I find I want to you know, shake people <laughs> by by the by, by the lapels and say no no you know yes we should absolutely look at, at all of the difficult aspects of history. It's not in our interests to to gloss over this and and turn the past into this kind of halcyon nostalgic sort of fuzzy image of, of a time when 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 things were great. You know that's what autocrats do, um, and and those of us who have leaders we can hold accountable should. You know, should demand that they that they don't do that, and that we do teach children a, a, a more nuanced and more a more balanced and a more comprehensive um, mm. picture picture of the past, rather than sort of centering our, our own our own heroism. Mm.
1: Hmm. No, well, absolutely. I mean, we can uh, maybe return to that full circle if uh, if we have time to reflect on it in the end, uh, as far as kind of outlook uh, for looking forward is concerned, too. But um, I'll, I'll start then uh, by, you know, kind of jumping into the, the kind of main body of the book. Um, and the chapters are divided uh, with these very kind of pithy titles that identify, I guess, a lot of the main uh, key dimensions to uh, this um, historical or this, this mobilization of history. I should say, in each place. Uh, so, I mean, just to go through them very quickly, you have myth, victory, enemies, memory, victims, truth, lies, control, heroes, patriots, and power. Um, and those kind of, I guess, uh, I mean, it's 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 amazing how deftly you move between uh, these different locations, as I already mentioned in the introduction. Um, but we'll start perhaps with the sort of mythological aspects of uh, of, of the histories that are uh, discussed in each of these places uh, and maybe the most mythical of all, or, or as you've said, uh, the um, North Korean case is a sort of nth degree study in some of these processes. So uh, you opened chapter one discussing uh, kind of the foundation myth, I guess, of, of North Korea. Could you say s- something, you know, just specifically about the content of that, How you came to, as you came to be familiar with it and how it's changed over time?
0: Yeah, I mean, this was something that I really learned by r- reporting on North Korea and looking at. I mean, primarily what I was covering was was the weapons tests. So we would tend to to focus on North Korea when they were testing a new nuclear weapon or, or launching a ballistic missile. And when you start to look at the speeches that Kim Jong Un, the current leader, gives and the way this is reported, um, it, it's all presented as as defensive, and it, and it's all about how you know. The country is is threatened by the the hostile policy of of the United States, and it needs to build up its its strength and its nuclear deterrent, the, the treasured sword of the nuclear program, as as it's called there, in order to be able to defend itself. So, I wanted to look at what what are they referring to, and how do they what is the case they make to citizens about about why they need these these weapons and it, it turns out it's really I mean large parts of it are, are entirely made up um so there's, there's the, the foundation myth that I talk about in in the first chapter is around Kim Il-sung um the 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 first leader and how he came to power now it's there are elements of truth, um, in the story as, as there are in all, in all good propaganda. Um, so he, he genuinely was a a, a guerrilla fighter who, who fought against, um, Japanese colonial rule, um, of the korean peninsula but but crucially not not on the korean peninsula um during the 1930s he he joined a, a guerrilla band in in manchuria in northeast china and he 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 genuinely did he did fight um and he he was a he was a guerrilla commander but what he didn't do um was was liberate the korean peninsula from from japanese rule which he know um that's what the regime claims he did um that The story has really changed over time. So in the very early years of of the founding of North Korea, when the peninsula was divided between North and South, and the Soviets who were um, in control of, or um, I guess, setting up the new regime um, in the North, selected Kim Il-sung as their leader and set about sort of seeding a heroic backstory around him. he was in the Soviet Union at the time, so he had he had fought in Manchuria, but then he'd been forced across the border um, into the into the Soviet Union, and he didn't return to um, North Korea or the Korean Peninsula at all until after the defeat of Japan in the Second World War, and and Japan had had ceded control of Korea. So at at the start, in the very early days, the, the story that was told was that Kim uh, assisted the the Soviet forces that Kim fought bravely as a Japanese partisan. And then following the, the Soviet defeat uh, of Japan, he he became the, the leader of North Korea. But but over time, and he actually, he asks, um, he, there, there is a record of him asking one of the Soviet officers, could they please write the Korean partisans back into the liberation story? They want to be able to show that they contributed to, to this great victory and, and the Soviets refuse. But over time, the story starts to change. So in the early days, the, the Soviet army's in the lead, Kim's um, guerrilla partisans are, are are in the rear. Over the decades, it becomes so that the, you know the Koreans are in the lead, and now the, the Soviet army is is supporting them. And and now as the story goes, it's basically just Kim Il Sung and his um, Korean People's Revolutionary. Army, which there's no evidence to suggest that that organization ever existed, mm-hmm. um, that that um, you know stages this this triumphant return to the Korean Peninsula, vanquishes Japan, liberates the country, and the land erupts into into cheers and joy at, at Kim Il Sung's um, spectacular leadership and, and military victory. So I guess it, it all comes back to this first idea that Kim Il Sung personally secured um, North Korea's freedom, and in fact the entire Korean Peninsula's freedom. From, from Japanese rule. So he's, he's a, a great war hero to which people um, owe, owe their freedom. But then they've tacked on onto the, onto the end of this um, that five years later, what, what we would know as, as the Korean War, what they call the Fatherland Liberation War, that North Korea was attacked, um, they claim, by, by the United States and, and South Korea. And Kim, uh, once again, was able to, to wage a, a remarkable struggle Repel the aggressors and and secure North Korea's um, freedom once again. So he's sort of held up as this great mythical commander um, who who saves the country twice in a decade, brings these great empires first Japan and then the United States to their knees, and and secures the secures the happy life of of, of North Korea. Which you know, as I say, there there are elements of truth in it, but but there's probably more fiction. Um, th- than truth.
1: So yeah, this is a really interesting moment where you uh, identify a connection that exists not only sort of isomorphically, if you like, between uh, the processes at play uh, in each country, but actual kinetic or historical links between um, different parties, different uh, events, and this fading of the Soviet role or fading of acknowledgement of the Soviet role over time is very interesting. You also document sort of uh, observers of this at the time, you know, during uh, the uh, I guess sixties, uh, seventies, including from from Soviet Union, from Eastern Europe, um, noticing that the Kim cult was kind of ascendant. Um, so those links are are important. And another one, of course, is uh, China's role in in that Korean War. That's another you know important uh, direct connection. So moving on uh, into uh, Chapter Two, uh, which sort of begins with more of a focus on China, and shifting again, shifting. Uh, kind of uh, accounts of the the victory in the anti-Japanese war in particular. Um, I mean, often what you're telling here is a history of histories, if you like, right? How history itself has been narrated and re-narrated. So could you say uh, something more about the sort of parallel uh, changes in how China's war records uh, has been remembered and told uh, more recently over time?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that was really striking to me looking at at both Russia and China was how much this story has changed. I think looking at them now and the way these these wars are commemorated is is easy to assume it has always been like that. That every year from 1945, this has been the case. But it, it, in both Russia and China, and China, it took the the longest time for this story to to reemerge. Actually, the the initial response to the war um, by the by the Communist Party was to play it down. Um, so, I mean, the 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 key detail, which I'm, I'm sure most most listeners w- will be aware, is that the, you know the Communist Party wasn't in power at the time. It was the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai Shek, who was who was the leader of China at, at at the end of the war, and it was the it was the KMT that did the majority of the fighting and dying in that war. The the Communist Party were were i think they describe themselves now as fighting on the back front line um but but really they were they were in the yanan base um and and you know aside from the early part of the war it w- was primarily not not the communist soldiers um who who were fighting on the, on the front lines of this so when mao zedong first came to first came to paris in 1949 he really had very little interest in remembering and and certainly in centering the experience of of the what what we would know as the Second World War. Chiang Kai Shek was still alive. He was on Taiwan. He was, um, they feared he would he was preparing to to strike back against the mainland, so he, he didn't want to, in any way, give him credit for for the the victory in the war or or remember um, too much about the experience of the war. He wanted to focus on his on his own. Revolution and so so the wartime history just isn't. I think one of the things you come to, to realize looking around Chinese cities is that it, it's not part of the the memorial landscape. Just isn't there in the same way that it that it is in in many countries in the West or or now in Russia. You know there there is no central war memorial in 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 Beijing. It just it, it wasn't built. Um, and the memorial that that was built um, in in Chongqing to the um, to the to the victory in the war was repurposed post 1949 and became known as the Liberation Monument and was um, co-opted to to serve the to memorialize um, Mao's revolution. So th- the wartime history just yeah it, it wasn't central now then in the way that it that it is now, and it wasn't really until after. Mao's death in the in, in 1976 and, and really the nineteen eighties when this story really came to be to be re-examined, um, that it that it a, a more um a more representative story of the war could be could be told, and that the that the KMT's role could be could be acknowledged. And with that, once you acknowledge the KMT's role, then you can talk about all of the great battles that were fought in China. You can talk about the horrors, you know, the atrocities such as, such as the Nanjing Massacre, you know, the parts of the war that were fought by the KMT and on KMT controlled territory. Once they came back into the broader story of the war in, in the 1980s, it, it became an all-nation war of resistance was how they described it. And, it and it could be something that that was much more was much more prominent a, a much more important part of the country's history once again but, but that really wasn't the case for, for for decades and decades um the wartime history was kind of set set aside um and the focus was really on on mao his revolution and and on the korean war
1: right and you have some great kind of personal reflections on interviews with with people documenting the kind of personal level uh, implications of this shift in and focus right if, if it was earlier a sort of class struggle or a struggle between communist and nationalist parties that was stressed uh, then certain people were heroes within that narrative and certain people were villains and then later as the narrative changes then other people become heroes and and villains or, or martyrs and uh, and traitors or however it's framed and and you know people have had their own relatives and their own kind of um Uh, family connections, you know, both condemned and then rehabilitated by turns, uh, (laughs) depending on what's going on. So that's where some of that very vivid on the ground uh, reporting kind of comes into play uh, very effectively.
0: If I can just interject on that, that, that one of the one of the most important experiences of the researching of the book for me was getting to know this this woman in in Shanghai whose whose relative whose whose grandfather had fought and died for the for the KMT and who had suffered terribly during during the early years of 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 her life because she was told that her grandfather was a counter revolutionary because he was the KMT that the family you know, she grew up being told not not to talk about him you know she she knew broadly that he had Died in the war, but she wasn't allowed to say any more than that. Um, Her family really suffered in in the Cultural Revolution. But as the story of the war has changed, so has the story of her grandfather. He was formally rehabilitated um, in, in 1985 and recognized as a martyr in the war. And as the wartime history there has become more central, you know, she she recounted the going to going to watch a memorial being unveiled to her grandfather, being put up in a in a five star hotel and feted by local officials and and receiving a, a posthumous medal for him. So it I think sometimes these stories can seem quite quite abstract um, and that they you know they they concern primarily the, the history books, um, but they really change. Real, real lives, and in, in the case of of, of this lady Jiao Yan, meant she could know. You know, she she now has a, a prominent picture of her grandfather posted up in her in her shop. She likes to talk to to everybody about him, who he was, how he died, and and to remember him as, as a hero. So she's sort of lived through these these changes to the to the historical narrative.
1: Mm. Now, it reminded me, I guess, in a different context, of some of the people I've spoken to in the um, borderlands between China and North Korea, ethnically Korean uh, Chinese citizens, uh, some of whose you know, ancestors participated in the Korean War on the Chinese side. Uh, and as such, initially, with celebration of victory in the Korean War as, uh, along the Kim Il-sung lines, were uh, fated as martyrs or as heroes of that war. Then during the Cultural Revolution, that experience was stigmatized because it was foreign and outside China. And suddenly a problem again and so they were stripped of those martyr statuses if they you know people's relatives who'd passed away and uh, killed in the war and then uh following the end of the cultural revolution period the end of the mao era they were then re-rehabilitated if you like as complete kind of uh swinging to and fro um in a process which i think uh, you document well uh, actually in, in all these places but which is particularly noticeable in the soviet case uh, to use that as a, a sort of seg so do you want to say something about the great patriotic war memory here? And it's also something that has really remarkably shifted over time. What you know, what's what's happened there with Stalin's involvement, and how, what, who's responsible for the elevation of the war to its current status as a sort of religion?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, so I, again, this this is something that I, when I first went to Russia and, and watched the the Victory Day celebrations. Just sort of assumed this must have have always been like this, you know. It's it's so front and and center as a you know as a as a holiday in, in Russia, um, but that that really wasn't the case. Uh, Stalin, so he held a, a first victory parade right after the war in 1945, but quite quickly he started to move against his own wartime leaders. So the the marshal. Um, Zhukov who 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 led that first parade for instance was was demoted and, and um stripped of his his position he uh, and Stalin wanted to move away from commemoration of the war so having um having decided in in 1945 on the on the morning of of what is known as victory day may 9th that this would be a national holiday to be celebrated annually Two two years later in December 1947, he cancels that holiday altogether. Um there's very little explanation. There's just a short notice in a couple of the newspapers that says May 9th is now a normal working day. There will be a holiday on, on New Year's Day instead. And what's going on there is that he was quite concerned that by building up these these military leaders, I guess a little bit like like as as Mao was with, with Chiang Kai-shek, that they might attract too much attention. They might get too much glory and pe- prestige in their own right. In the case of Stalin, who was wholly paranoid, he was concerned they could become a threat to his own leadership. So he hadn't fought. And if you had these great frontline commanders um, being being celebrated as as war heroes every year, perhaps they could become a, a threat to his own leadership. It was also, you know, it did not feel triumphant. You know, the, the, the country had been utterly devastated. Um there was real suffering, there was famine again. Stalin didn't want to focus on the, the horrors and the and the trauma of the war and all of the rewards that he couldn't offer. You know, people had been fighting and and dying for 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 four years and now what was there you know they were they were coming back to to homes and, and lives that 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 were destroyed um so he wanted them to to move on from the war there there's a a, a directive from his um, propagandist Andrei Zhdanov, I think in, in 1946 saying that people should be dissuaded from quote taking some time off to recover from the war the idea was that they needed to get back to work to get back back to building the cause of, of socialism so so the war story really starts to get downplayed and the individual commanders are are taken out of it and victory day just becomes a, a normal working day and it's not till 1965 and Leonard Brezhnev's time that they reinstate the victory day holiday so you know there there is some chance and, and some happenstance so he he takes over after the after the ouster of, of Khrushchev and is really looking for, you know, what are what how can we rally popular support behind the party? So it was then almost half a century um from the from the Bolshevik revolution. The horrors of Stalin's rule were, were still fresh and, and clear in, in people's minds. You know, Lenin was still um was still a very central and prominent figure and the historian Nina Tamarkin has written extensively about the cult of Lenin that, that Brezhnev then and dusted off um, and also tried to attract support behind. But Lenin didn't really capture the popular imagination and, and generate real emotion in the way that the memory of the, of the war did. So Brezhnev brought back Victory Day. He built the new um the tomb of the unknown soldier that that many people will have seen outside the kremlin wall had had the had the remains of a soldier exhumed from the site of the battle of moscow and, and interred in the new um memorial of of the unknown soldier but i think what was most striking to me is this a, a ceremony that i describe in the book where they then transported a portion of the eternal flame from the martyr cemetery in st petersburg in inside an armored personnel carrier all the way to moscow and used that flame so the flame that commemorated the revolutionary martyrs to light the new eternal flame at the tomb of the unknown soldier and and the moscow party boss g- gives a speech about how these the, the ranks of these of these various um, legions the 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 revolutionaries um from 1917 and, and now the 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 Soviet forces during the great Patriotic War would would close ranks and and defend um the the party and its and its place in history so it it really felt like both a you know a, a symbolic and an actual passing of, of the torch and a clear decision to to turn to the wartime history mm-hmm. and 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 use that wartime history to to generate support for the for the party which it which it really Badly needed. So he's he's the first leader who who builds what's been described as the cult of the Great, great Patriotic War. Um, introduces new new systems of, of patriotic education. Uh, presides over the, the building of a, a huge number of of monuments and memorials, and really turns back to the wartime history um, mm. as a as a key symbol to, to rally the country behind.
1: Mm. Well, I wonder. I mean, if we we'll stay, we could stay there on on the kind of Russia Russia case because you document this kind of this toing and froing extremely, extremely well. And uh, late, a bit later in the book, you, you discuss then uh, the subsequent period after Brezhnev and, and the Gorbachev era and the sort of vastness in this kind of description of this uh, dismantling of some of these uh, kind of rigid interpretations and the, and the desire for exploration of history. Um, of course, uh, at that exact time, uh, a certain figure who now leads Russia was growing up and I guess was uh, conditioned to be understanding some of these things. So... Um, do you think his sort of the fact that Putin was, the, uh, you know, growing uh, up and, and being acculturated to this Brezhnev era uh, war memory, and then experienced the uh, Gorbachev times, uh, I guess more more chaotic, more kind of um, unpredictable, and, and and less ultimately, of course, uh, good for most people on a material level. Do you think that had some bearing on on his? Sort of a, a attitude and approach, maybe what he was inclined to draw on uh, in, in shoring up his own power later on. That's a bit of a speculative question. Who knows what his brain is doing? But, uh,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, certainly if we if we look at what he has said about it, and with all you know the, the caveats that, that clearly he's you know he's not the most reliable of, of narrators. Um, but he has described himself as a, a pure and utterly successful product of of Soviet patriotic education. Um, so he was twelve when Victory Day. Was reintroduced uh, just just starting high school, and he would have been he would have been going through his teenage years just as the commemoration of the war um, was was reaching his height. And he would have he one would presume did receive some of this some of this patriotic education as part of his as part of his schooling. I, th- I think there there's both you know the, the wider national picture, and then as as there is for for, for many Russians, there's the personal story and the personal links he has with with the war he's talked extensively about his father's own service how he was wounded behind enemy lines how his his older brother died um, during the siege of leningrad and how his, how his mother very nearly al- also died so he so he both has gone through the patriotic education system but but does have these personal links to the war and it i think the experience he had of the of the glasnost and and perestroika years were very different for for many people you know for a start he wasn't in the soviet union for for most of that time he he had gone abroad to and and was posted in dresden for the kgp and i think his experience of of that time and certainly of seeing the soviet collapse was was great you know humiliation chaos personal threat you know he, he recounts in his um you know Clearly, a geographical um, memoirs type type interview uh, book that came out in two thousand. How you know protesters gathered outside the KGB building in in Dresden, and, and he feared they were going to overrun the building. So his experience of, of the reform years was 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 very bad, um, and he saw it as a as a loss of power. He, he talks in his own writing about experiencing you know. The protesters at the gate and and calling for support from a, a local Soviet barracks and being told they can't do anything without orders from Moscow and Moscow is silent. So I think witnessing that that collapse of, of power and resolving that, that that would never be the case. You know, it, it's it's reasonable to to assume that those that those have played into how he now exercises power. But he he really seizes he seizes on the history of the war. But it's also difficult to see what you know, there weren't many options. You know, when when he comes to to power in in December, 1999, you know, there was the, you know, the the Soviet Union had had just collapsed. Um, the the space there was the space race, but ultimately that had even that had been lost um, to to the United States. Stalin's memory was was um, was was difficult and complicated because it was associated with with the repression and, and the and the atrocities. Um, so you know the, the revolution was, was tricky because you didn't want to. As he's still, he's still careful about how he commemorates the, you know, the the centenary of the of the Bolshevik Revolution, passed with, with barely a whisper in Russia, uh, because he's not keen to linger on the idea of the masses taking to the streets and uh, and overthrowing a, a corrupt uh, imperial elite. And um, so, so there aren't a great deal of of options to to look at. And then you know. So there's the victory in the war. And and that's what he, you know, from the earliest days of his presidency, two days after his inauguration, he leads his first Victory Day um, event. And the war allows him to paint this picture of a Russia that that he wants to live in and that many people are receptive to hearing, that, that Russia is this great, ever-victorious, um, heroic nation that secured this great victory in the last century and will be victorious again Um but of course it needs a it needs a strong leader um like 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 vladimir putin um to take the reins so the the past really serves his purposes but he also the, there weren't many many good options yeltsin had had tried and failed to find he held a, a competition for to find a new a new national idea um in the mid 1990s and came up and came up empty handed um so putin seized on the history of the war and he has and he has and he has continued to seize on the history of the war and amplify that narrative over more than two decades now in power.
1: Yeah, it's. it's I mean, it's tempting to say, I don't know if this really holds up because probably the history or, or experience of any significant group of people, probably beyond 10 people, is very complicated and multi-layered. But there's something, especially in the Chinese and Russian case, which, uh, you know, kind of that the as you say the options are few to draw on but that must have maybe have something to do with the fact that these are vast kind of eurasian you know continental land masses involving countless different kinds of people different events on different scales ca- happening obviously now of, also over a long span of time and so finding a simple story out of any of that so immensely difficult um one thing that uh, you mentioned there too about Putin's experiences and the kind of idea of the chaos and the weakness that was experienced, I guess, uh, you know, in, in his, uh, I guess, young or mid early adulthood, um, is is a, a sense of a sense of threat, a sense of external victimhood, and this is something you draw attention to throughout. Um, but in particular, I guess, in relation to China, uh, if we return there, um, and so uh, I just wonder, maybe in the Chinese case or, or more generally, what's your sense of how these victim narratives coexist with uh, narratives of, of victory because you know they might be perceived to be sort of self-contradictory uh, in some ways. They're both simultaneously weak and preyed upon, but also gloriously victorious. Like, how how do you see that playing out? Uh, I guess in China in particular, but elsewhere too.
0: Yeah, I, that's a great way to put it. Um, I think it, it is contradictory. Um, they are trying to maintain two ideas simultaneously which is that these are great glorious mighty countries that can that can um that can never be defeated um but also that they've suffered terribly um that they're under tremendous threat so they're they're both simultaneously great glorious and under um, endless uh, endless existential uh, endless existential threat and I think they the the where you see that come to a head in, in China is, in the aftermath of the uh, Tiananmen crackdown, when Deng Xiaoping identifies their, the, the core failing, he says, the you know, the greatest mistake we, we've made is in our ideological education that we didn't do a good enough job of telling people what, what China was like in the old days and what kind of country it was to become. They felt that they had gotten the balance wrong, that they had focused too much on the victorious Story of Mao's revolution and perhaps made that seem inevitable, and perhaps made the you know the the growth of the economy and and the opportunities that that were starting to 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 come to to people's real lives in China um, seem like that was always going to happen. And he felt like they had not done a good enough job of explaining what it was like before the the Communist Party took power. So they made this really clear decision to focus on China's past victimhood and to focus on on um, national humiliation and particularly what they, what they call the century of humiliation that the country had suffered um before the rise of, of the Communist Party which I'm sure many listeners will, will know but begins with the with the opium Wars of the 19th century and culminates in the Japanese invasion at, at the start of the, the the second world War when when China is portrayed as being just you know preyed upon Carved apart, suffering terribly at the hands of all of all these foreign powers, and the blame for that is placed on their weak, corrupt imperial leadership. So the moral of that story and the broader historical narrative is that China must have the Communist Party's leadership if it's to be strong, safe, safe and prosperous. So they they are trying to keep those two ideas in, in mind at the same time. That this is this is a great um, a great country with a, with a noble. Glorious history, but that it has faced devastating threats before, and that if the Communist Party ever falls from power, it could end up back there again. So I think that the slogan that they were really pushing in 2021 around the, the centenary of, of the Communist Party's founding was, "Without the CCP, there would be no new China." This this mm. idea that if the Communist Party, um, you know, the Communist Party is acting in China's interests, and that it, if it is ever overthrown china will be will be a, a great peril once again
1: mm. which again sits interestingly with the, the sort of rehabilitation of the the guomindan of the of the nationalists uh you know that i mean you don't get any prizes for pointing out small inconsistencies in some of these things because the whole point in them is that they're quite general and quite broad and well, yeah,
0: and i remember i asked a north Korean defector about it because it seemed to me there's this totally nonsensical um part in the story where where kim how could it be i was asking him that kim il sung you know liberates the korean peninsula and and freedom is is has come to all of the land and then you know, the the peninsula is divided between north and south um if it was kim who liberated the korean peninsula how did he allow or you know how did the peninsula come come to be divided and um this Gentlemen told me we just we're not we're not taught to think like that we are not these stories are not to be examined and and analyzed and, and we're not meant to look for the for the contradictions it's just to be understood here is the here is the the form of events the the dates these key things happened and so while it might seem it just logically seems it seems seems improbable that one day the Korean Peninsula was liberated and free and the next minute it was divided in in two with no further battles being fought. Um, it, it doesn't matter. That's 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 the story, and that's what you're required to to repeat.
1: Right, and you you kind of uh, conclude or, or towards the end of the book uh, explore more the um, particular ways that that record of Kim il songs and then of, with the bridging period of Kim Jong Il has been uh, explored or mobilized in a in a ver- in another context, right, a hereditary context of Kim Jong Un now being in power. The kind of connections. Even to the level of uh, similarities in physical appearance that have been made between uh, between the current current leadership in North Korea and that and that record. Um, but actually, that point you made uh, leads me to one of my one of my last questions. Basically, um, you're discussing there that you know the, the particular way that ordinary people uh, come to understand these things and the extent to which they may or may not, you know, uh, or how much credence these ideas have as far as ordinary people are concerned. And of course, there are aspects of the stories themselves, the content of how the, how you're taught, but also the broader climate uh, in which these ideas are shared. So, uh, of course, the cases are very different. not Russia, China, North Korea, they're, sociologically, they're kind of demographically, they're, they're very different in many ways. And the pluralism that is there in different ideas, even now, even despite the similarities, is, is very different. Um, uh, but in order to understand these things, as you say, in a more textured way than is often assumed, we do have to understand the, the role of ordinary people, what, what may appeal, or otherwise, about some of these uh, historical narratives, uh, and how much support there might actually be for any of these uh, people in power. So how do you get through that kind of complicated question about where people get there? You know, how much do people support? Does it matter? Uh, is it more of a bottom-up, is it more of a top-down process? We can't ignore ordinary people altogether. Obviously, uh, in fact, my background is in anthropology, so we can't ignore them at all. They're the only people that matter, really. <laughs> but anyway, how do, how do you understand the role of uh, sort of citizens in this these processes?
0: Yeah, I mean, I explore this in, in some detail um, in in the book. The role of, of individual, both both. Um, Citizens and and historians in pushing back against these narratives. So it's important to be clear that while you know that the the state is is giving its version of history and, and making it very difficult and very dangerous now now to challenge that. That doesn't mean that everyone who hears that is automatically you know converted believes the believes the regime's version of events um, and accepts that that history of fact. There are there are you know many brave individuals who are who are pushing back and who and who are suffering as a consequence and actually the the title of the book dancing on Bones," comes from a quote from a a russian activist who had who was uh, who felt that the, the way the war was being commemorated on putin had become this sort of triumphalist bombastic um celebration every year on on may 9th and he felt that We had lost the memory of the real people and and individuals who who fought. So he started this movement that he called the Immortal Regiment, where they would just march quietly holding photographs of relatives who had died in the war. And the the idea was to put real people um, and and more of a sort of somber um, reflection back into the the commemoration of, of the end of the war. And the, the movement was was massively successful. Um, they they had thousands, and then hundreds of thousands of people wanting to take part. And so, of course, um, the authorities couldn't couldn't have this grassroots movement um, running out, out with its its control. So that I, I, they they co-opted it they they um came up with it they called it the immortal regiment of russia parallel movement which which quickly subsumed the original and now that it's this extraordinary event that the putin uh, before the pandemic restrictions anyway putin marches at at the front of the event holding a picture of his his own father it has become everything the founders didn't want and and this and this um, one of the original founders when he's talking about it says that you know the authorities are are dancing on bones that you know we, we should just stop and remember the individual people people who fought but they're you know they're they're abusing this history and they're and they're dancing on bones so I wanted to try to try and capture the way that this history is being used but also the resistance and and the grassroots um, pushback to that and in, in terms of whether people. Believe the history or or not. I mean, I think one of the points I came out to in, in the book is that partly what makes this so so effective, and and you know, with the caveat that, that these systems are different, some po- portion of the population is is genuinely persuaded. You know, there, some portion of, of the of the North Korean population genuinely does believe Kim Il Sung liberated the peninsula staved off an extraordinary attack um, in the Korean War, and that they're lucky to have the, the Kims as leaders. But for those citizens who, who don't, and certainly, you know, there is reason to believe that the, that there are a number of the population who don't agree with the Kims rule, and, and who do feel that, you know, there, there are real problems that, that emanate from it. The problem becomes that you can't express that publicly, that, that discourse, propaganda becomes a, a tool of, of power, you know, the, the if people are know what is expected of them and they can only express certain limited views um, in public it's very difficult to know whether you're in the minority or or not whether a significant number of people um, agrees with you that that this this history um, doesn't add up and, and that you and that you don't support the leadership if all you if all you're allowed to do in public is express your un, undying support so mm. I mean I would I had the experience in North Korea of of You know, speaking to people face to face, you know, in in their own homes and seeing their eyes well with tears and just not, and thinking, I just have no way to know, do you genuinely believe what you're telling me right now, which is that you're, you know, you're grateful from the, from the bottom of the heart, from the bottom of your heart for the Kim's um, leadership and sacrifices for the country? Or do you just understand that that's the only view you can you can give, particularly to a foreign journalist who's accompanied by, you know, a gentleman to one side, a gentleman to the other side, who are, who are writing down everything you're saying and, yeah. and know where, where you live and, and, and what your name is. So it, it's a sort of two-fold strategy where if it can generate genuine support, and, you know, there, there's evidence in Russia now um, with some, some of the... Um, List experiments that people are doing. That, that there is genuinely majority support for for the war. That there is buy-in to this narrative that they're fighting fascists and, and Nazis in Ukraine. But even if you don't believe that, as long as the propaganda is all-encompassing enough, it's impossible to say to say otherwise. So it gives the impression of widespread public support. Whether that is how people feel individually about the leaders or or not.
1: Mm. Well, I guess uh, you know in, in in these conditions of particular power dynamics and power is the title of of the conclusion key uh key term in the title of the book is of course too maybe belief or not belief isn't really actually the most relevant or helpful question in that sense you know that the kind of in fact even wondering what individual people believe is uh over time might be considered a sort of individualistic western view or a bourgeois uh, pre- sort of uh, preoccupation. Um, but just to, to kind of finish then, I, I mean, uh, as a final question, you've looked over the sort of durée at lots of uh, these sort of shifts in narratives and given what you've said uh, about the sheer um, kind of p- power and, and um, monotony, if you like, or, or homogeneity of these historical narratives as they are now kind of increasingly enforced or as enforced as ever in the North Korean case, perhaps. Um, do you see this... As just the latest sort of turn in a sort of or latest swing in a pendulum process of openness and and restriction, because those broad dynamics are at play, at least in Russia and China. And what's your sense of how uh, what 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 kind of prospects might there be in future for people who've been educated under such a sort of historical regime to to think about things in a different way, should you know the political environment change? In any of these places, based based on previous examples of changes occurring, you know, back into the twentieth century and the late twentieth, early twenty first centuries.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible that that these stories could change. I think if a if a fundamental fundamentally different regime um, came to came to power and and allowed a more critical analysis of these stories, certainly they would not be the sort of. Very glorious, triumphalist, um, and sort of all-consuming all narratives that that they are currently. I think the the problem is that it new leaders will have the same problem these leaders have had of well, what do you base your claim to power on? And perhaps you know if that's a if that's a you know let's suspend disbelief and say that Navalny comes to power in. In, in Russia, you know, perhaps his perhaps the founding myth becomes about defeating Putinism, and and um, he has his own um, liberal democratic founding myth. Although I think probably would be quite sceptical um, of, of what the what the reality would be. You know, it's possible to change the story, and it, and it's possible to you know, Ukraine's national story is is being rewritten in real time as as we speak. You know, the, the founding myth of the Ukrainian identity for for the coming generations is now going to be built on its resistance to Russia. Um, So these stories can change, but I think the more likely scenario is that whoever comes next will, will similarly look out over the, over the course of, of, of recent history, look at the options and decide that, that the wartime narrative, you know, perhaps you want to, perhaps you want to change aspects of, of the story and, and, um, emphasize different elements but the wartime narrative and the ability to appeal to 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 nationalism is the is the main insurance policy for for whoever for whoever comes next you know if they if you have access to extraordinary economic growth and you can point to to great you know a sudden influx of prosperity and and opportunity for your citizens you can absolutely make that an important part of your of your national story but you know, as we're also seeing here in the West, when the when the economic times get harder, when growth isn't assured, when when people aren't aren't certain about the future, delving back in into the past and these and these glorious stories of, of the past, and if needed, you know, the, the idea that that there are enemies once again at, at the gates, and the country needs to um circle the circle circle around the leaders, and and stand up to these threats. You know, those are the real potent narratives that i think you know what one one consistent feature of the book is that you know time and again that's the lever that that leaders have have reached for is is the past and how the how the past can shape and and cement their their current claims to power so the the stories can change um, but i think we should be prepared for these stories to be a, a key part of the of the national narratives of, of these countries for you know for the foreseeable future
1: yeah well i, I don't know whether that's a uh, an optimistic prognostication or not but uh, at the very least as you say uh, they encourage anyone in any other setting outside these places to reflect on how some of these kinds of processes are far from alien uh, within our own societies too um but anyway katie optimistic or otherwise thank you so much for appearing on the podcast today it was great speaking to you
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Um, before you go, I guess I'll just ask uh, what you're working on currently. Do you have other writing projects on the go? Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, what, what, what's following up from this uh, excellent book?
0: I'm um, um, thinking through a few sort of bigger ideas. Um, my, my primary uh, focus right now is I, I, I joined the New Statesman magazine um, in, in January of, of this year, Um a, publication i've long admired so i'm so i'm focused on it on a daily basis right now on 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 writing for the new statesman and, and really focusing on 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 china but also on, on russia and and the war in ukraine so, the, so there's plenty to write about but it, it really does I, I feel like we are at an important point in history and perhaps people always feel like this but i think some of the issues that you know i, I know you all you also look at in, in terms of of how how the world is how the world is shaping up in these these battles of ideas between aut- autocracies and democracies you know there are really there are really key issues now at stake and i think focusing on on china and russia and and, and north korea too you know the... the the certainty that we have perhaps um, nurtured here here in the West about the future of, of liberal democracy—you know—that's that, not how much how a lot of the world um, sees sees the the present and the future. Um, so there's so there's plenty plenty to to, to write about um, and, and look into more detail.
1: <laughs> Certainly. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, listeners would. Uh, do well to uh, look at your other your other outputs as well, um, journalistic and 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 written in in, in other venues too. So uh, I would encourage them to do that. Um, thanks once again, Katie, and uh, thank you, listeners, too, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast uh, channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with with you again very soon. Goodbye.